Make Christianity Weird Again. Hello, I'm right. Earl, <laughs> I'm Earl Fontanelle. This is the Schweb, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. Today, we are delighted to be speaking with Paul Paschesi, a man who knows a thing or two about ancient weird Christianity, but more to the point, is a specialist on ancient Christian asceticism. Paul, thank you so much for coming to talk to us on the Schweb today. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. First of all, before we even get into the nitty-gritty of the weirdness, why do we want to talk about asceticism as opposed to monasticism, for example, even though they sometimes over overlap? Yeah, I think um, monasticism conjures up for a lot of people a sort of Pacomian, Egyptian-style, organized communities living together in work and prayer, uh, which then gets exported to the West with John Cashin, and the monks at Lorraine, and then kind of becomes influential in the Benedictine tradition and therefore like Western monasticism. So I think when most people think of monastic practice, they're picturing monks who owned a lot of land somewhere in the south of France with a lot of verdant green and, yeah. you know, sheep and kind of fat monks who make beer, right? Like that's yeah, very prosperous. And correct. And when we look at early christian asceticism it's much more diverse and uh you know even uh saint anthony right who's the purported founder of monasticism according to athanasius's biography of him really is not right because even in that biography athanasius is very clear that anthony studied in the desert with a master so it's more like a master guru relationship where you're being trained in these sort of practices and it's more of a solitary asceticism but who did he learn that from? And how far back does that tradition go, even in Egypt? And we we don't know, I think, uh, very clearly on that, because we don't have a lot of good sources on Egyptian Christianity. I mean, you have great finds like the Oxyrhynchus papyri, which is just a massive garbage dump of paper, right? And you've got everything from receipts to libellus, these kind of receipts showing that you've sacrificed to the gods so you don't get persecuted under Decius. You've got fragments of some of the earliest gospels. The Gospel of Thomas fragments are from Oxyrhynchus. Um, so you have a that you, kind of You've stuff. even got a first century Gospel of Mark fragment, apparently. Oh, no. Wait. Oh, no. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Definitely not. Um, yeah, especially when people are like, well, it says Kai. Great and the most common word in Greek. <laughs> it must be from the Gospel of Mark. Sure, or Homer. Let's just go with that. Uh, but anyways, so out on the edges of the Roman Empire, right, you have the Parthian Empire in the first and second centuries, and they're conquered by the Sasanian Iranian Persians in 224. And in that realm, you also have Christians, some of whom are deportees, so they are Greek-speaking Christians, and even in some of our earliest, like, rock-cut inscriptions from high priests, Mobed Mobedim, the Zoroastrian high priests like Carter, will refer to the Christianoi, right, these, these Greek-speaking Christians, as opposed to the Nazaroi, the, the Nazareans, who are like the Aramaic-speaking Christians who are there. Right. So they seem to conceive of them as two different groups. Um, so asceticism is more broadly based, and, you know, we get the word from the Greek word ascesis, which is training and seems to have originally been used of people training for like sport, right? And in some of the uh, different kinds of combat or uh, Olympian games, if you lost, you might die. 
So that's going to affect the way you train for a sport if a likely outcome is your death. So that's going to affect your pathane, the, the way you feel, your emotions. It's going to affect your, uh, your noose, your mind, and how you grow and how you do that. And it's going to affect your body and how you're sort of preparing yourself for death. And so asceticism gets used to describe some of these practices in early Christian thought. And it falls under a couple of rubrics. So sometimes you'll find things like ancrotea, right? Just self-control. Sometimes you'll find references to, um, you know, the passions and control of the passions. Sometimes you'll find references to control of the body. So there's uh, a sense of the soma as a kind of arena in which you are waging spiritual combat between these kind of cosmic forces. So even Paul in some of his letters seems to imply sort of a cosmic dualism between uh, sarks or flesh as opposed to uh, spirit and grace. And these things are kind of warring in your soma, in your body. Um, and what we find is a lot of solitary asceticism. So you have in the Syriac tradition, early references to wandering ascetics who viewed themselves seemingly living like the apostles. So they would travel from place to place, uh, spreading the good news, uh, doing probably things like faith healings and preaching along with that. Right. And, and kind of um, exposing themselves to the elements to have sort of vision states or things like that. And we'll get into that. But later, by the time we get to the fourth century, we have lots of references to different types of asceticism. So you've got a group that Afrahat, um, it's not his real name, but it's what he's known to history as, but uh, sometimes he's referred to as maybe someone named Jacob of, of you know, Adiabene. We don't really know, but he lived in a predominantly Jewish kingdom, Adiabene, which uh, the King Azatis converted to Judaism in the first century. Uh, he was very influenced by his mother, Helen. And actually later on the Constantine Helen legends kind of seemed to build on really this wow. earlier tradition of conversion, but they sent troops to help the first Judean revolt. Where is this king? Of this is in Northern Iraq today. So uh, centered on uh, Nineveh and uh, Mosul, modern Mosul would be in that area, uh, Erbil. And then, kind of the Zab River, there's the greater and lesser Zab. Right. So is this yeah. a independent, uh, like, border border client kingdom between the Parthians and the Romans? Right. Eventually like, conquered like by Paul the Myra, Like one of these kind of uh, and like Yeah, and like Osrahone, mm -hmm. uh, where Edessa is centered. And actually for Syriac Christianity, Edessa is kind of the motherland for, it's now modern-day Urfa in Turkey. Yeah. But um, Edessa, Dessa is what it's known as in antiquity, but they seem to be where the dialect of Syriac and the written script of Syriac originate Great. in Edessa, as now, far as we can reconstruct. Now, I would love and to... And Adiabene is just to the east of them. Before we return to Adiabene and get into this, this yeah. whole story, let's back up a tiny bit. Um, mm. in, in, in the interest of keeping our feet solidly planted in historical geographical territory for people who aren't right. familiar with this period, we've introduced our Parthians, later Sasanians. That's... Call yes. it Persia for convenience, this, sure. this large eastern realm. We've got the Romans, of course, to the west. What is Syriac, and, and what do we need to know about Syriac going forward? Yeah, so Syriac is, uh, and I'm incredibly biased here, but it's a very beautiful uh, Semitic language, so it's very closely related to Aramaic. Mm -hmm. It's basically a dialect of Aramaic. So the difference between 
Aramaic and Syriac is kind of like the difference between like Italian and Spanish, right? Like if you can read one, you can read the other. A speaker could probably follow some of what's happening, but it's not as diverse. It's not as different as say like French and Italian where gotcha. you probably can't follow a conversation in the same way, even though they're both romance languages. So these Semitic languages tend to be, you know, ABC series. So they're not full alphabets. There aren't vowel characters. You just have consonants. Um, they're written from right to left. Um, and in this family, you've got Ugaritic, which is one of the earlier phases we have going back to the Bronze Age. Mm. And that's written in a cuneiform alphabetic script, but also an ABC degree. Um, you've got Hebrew, uh, which with the square script, which is still used by Samaritans to this day, who still exist as an independent religious community, although very small. You have Aramaic, which uses the more standardized um Sorry, for Samaritan, I meant Paleo-Hebrew script, which is yeah. very blocky and like kind of chiseled looking. But yeah. the square script is Aramaic characters, which is then taken over. And so if you've seen Hebrew written, it's usually written in this Aramaic-influenced script that was introduced by the earlier Persian dynasties, the Achaemenids under Cyrus the Great, yeah. Darius, and Artaxerxes, and all of them. And that Aramaic kind of becomes the lingua franca of this vast area that the Achaemenids ruled. So parts of Iran, Iraq, Syria, and it's still spoken as a language at the time of Jesus. So many of the Dead Sea Scrolls, especially the very distinctive sectarian scrolls, are written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. Hmm. And there are some arguments scholars have made that maybe it's a way of saying this is esoteric knowledge and this esoteric knowledge has this pedigree coming from the Achaemenids versus like Greek knowledge or later Roman knowledge. So it almost might've been a political kind of thing to write this text in Aramaic. So Aramaic seems to be still spoken. We have evidence in the gospels, which are written in Greek that Jesus primarily spoke Aramaic. Yeah. So you have a lot of things where they'll have to translate. He said this, you know, Talitha Kumi, the little girl arise, right. And they have to translate it for you. John's gospel is kind of interesting because sometimes he translates Greek words he's using for an audience that seems to be Aramaic speaking, and sometimes yeah. he seems to be translating, you know, words that are uh, Aramaic for a Greek speaking audience. So that's kind of cool to see that happening in real time. Um, Paul even writes some things in Aramaic, like the famous uh, Maranatha, our Lord come, right, is an Aramaic expression. Um, so early Christianity speaks Aramaic. Jesus and his earliest disciples seemingly spoke Aramaic. This seems to be pretty widely agreed in scholarship. And Syriac is a dialect of Aramaic, and cool. it's spoken in what's now modern-day Syria, parts of eastern Turkey, and Iraq. And there's these provinces that later become part of the Sasanian Empire uh, that form kind of the whole basin of the Tigris and Euphrates, where Aramaic seems to be the dominant language. And Syriac becomes the kind of primary written form of that language that we see in the period from the third century onward, certainly, but we do have inscriptions from uh, second century and there's some debate. People will try to say, well, this inscription maybe is first century, but really like solidly dated second century, third century Syriac is the primary way of rendering this form of Aramaic at this time. Um, and this is different than Jewish Aramaic texts we find like 
the Mishnah, the Talmuds, and things like that. The bowls. Yeah, yeah, the incantation bowl. So Mandaic is very closely related. So the Mandaean uh, tradition is also a dialect of Aramaic, but a more Eastern kind of form. Cool. Now, thank you so much for that background. Those who are interested in this stuff will have benefited greatly. I know I did. Those who who aren't inter- totally interested in it can maybe just put the, the last three minutes behind them, and we'll get back to <laughs> to Helen, I guess. Yeah. So this is all recorded in Josephus. Uh, the, so great, is, the great historian writing in Greek who was a sort of famous turncoat against the Jews uh, when the Romans wiped out in the first Jewish I, revolt. I think he gets kind of a bad rap there. I don't, I don't think he was necessarily a turncoat. He viewed himself like Daniel. Like, I think he thought he was a prophet and he thought he was like Daniel and, you Going know, he's prophesying the at the right. court of the king. Yeah, he's prophesying at the court of the king, right? He predicted that Vespasian would be emperor. And once Vespasian became emperor, he was like, oh, hey, I got this Eastern magician who uh, says cool stuff. And he became part of the court. I mean, he even ends up taking on the name Flavius Josephus for the Flavian dynasty. He's yeah. like adopted, you know. Yeah. But he writes two major works and two other works that are all very important and influential, but there's the Judean Antiquities, which covers kind of a retelling of Jewish history and tradition to kind of assert the greatness and antiquity of the Jewish people over against, you know, Egyptians, over against Romans, over against the Greeks. And it retells a lot of biblical stories with a very distinct perspective. But where historians tend to love him is like books 12 to 20 don't really correspond to other literature we have. There's a little bit of overlap with the books of the Maccabees yeah. in uh, the, the Deuterocanonical texts, but otherwise it gives us a huge amount of history on King Herod the Great. Right. It gives us a lot of history on the later Hasmoneans, and he's the one who tells us about Izates and his mother and their conversion to Judaism. And, you know, it's it's pretty important historical data. And that's why we know so much more about the first Judean revolt because he his first work was called the Judean War. He claims that he had previously written a version in Aramaic, although no trace of this has been found. Some people have tried to argue there's there's weird versions in the Slavonic of Josephus that might where you have long passages. Some people have tried to argue that I don't I don't know that we can prove that from from what it says, but he claims to have originally written in Aramaic, and then the Greek version is slightly later because Titus liked it and wanted it publicized because it made him look good as far as Titus was concerned. Yeah, But they're both very influential texts, and for some early Christian communities, different edited versions of Josephus become part of their canon of the Bible. So there is a text called the, the Josephon that's in some Ethiopic canon lists. Uh, although there's some debate about which sections of the war or the antiquities it includes in some Syriac authors, they'll, they'll cite from, uh, uh, Josephus, um, and you have some Armenian canon lists that Michael Stone has edited that talk about, uh, Josephus apparently having been used in a semi-canonical fashion at different points. So he's largely preserved by Christians, not Jews. Hmm. and widely used as a historian. Isn't it interesting that the two are two best sources for for that awkward space of it's not Second Temple Judaism anymore, but it's not Rabbinic Judaism yet. 
are both right. these Hellenized, are Philo and Josephus, these two mm-hmm. like utterly Hellenized um, Jewish writers embedded within not just the, Gre- the Greco world, but the Greco-Roman world tell us so much of what we know about Judaism in this period. It's very, very, and, right. and, and both of them survive through Christianity, not through Judaism. Correct. And Philo especially is great for, you know, that middle Platonism, as uh, Dylan likes to call it, you know, that period, he's so influential and such an important hinge uh, that connects kind of the more classically Hellenistic authors pre-Roman with later, very emphatically Roman authors. Like he is definitely something that they seem to know and have read and been influential, especially his concepts of the logos. And Yeah. yeah. But he, there's not a peep from Philo in the Jewish tradition, in the in the, the the rabbinic tradition he's just completely forgotten so it's an interesting one christianity's relationship with uh, judaism is something well, i'll never get my head around but i love um exploring the contours of it as the podcast progresses because it's really really interesting well and and some of the choices right to double down on palestinian aramaic in like the targumim or double down on hebrew and is kind of a nativist reaction that's almost anti-Hellenism. And that might be part of the reason why there's a silence about Philo or Josephus, right? Because they are writing in the the, the colonizing powers language. I mean, just look at like India in the 20th century, right? Doubling down on Gujarati was a a pretty nice middle finger to the British Empire, Mm. you know? Doubling down on, you know what I mean? You're you're speaking in a way that the colonizer can't understand and doesn't have access to. Yeah. So you can maybe see that in the the, the beginning of that program, that revolutionary program in the Maccabees, which, uh, of yeah. course, ironically, is written in Greek, but maybe got its job done. It told a bunch of Greek people, what you need to do is be learning Hebrew. And then, you know, right. fast forward a bit, 100 years or so, and people are learning Hebrew, and then Hebrew's back. Although seemingly Aramaic throve as a Jewish language for eons right. afterwards. No one had a problem with yeah. Aramaic for whatever reason. Let's get back to this this uh, pesky yeah. Helen and uh, yeah, and all this good stuff. So, I mean, all we know about them really is from Josephus. There's some archaeological evidence. There's some numismatic evidence from coins. There are a couple monuments in Jerusalem still to this day that are referred to as like the tomb of Helen, right? That she might have paid for uh, to be built there. But they they convert to Judaism, and so you have this kingdom, Adiabene which is at least majority Jewish, even into the fourth century. And they are now, by this point, absorbed into the Sasanian state. And we have a writer who we call Afrahat, which is from the Persian for, you know, wise sage. Some people say maybe he's Jacob, maybe he's whatever, because some manuscripts give different names. But really, we only have a couple manuscripts of Afrahat's works. But he's very securely dated, to a very narrow window between 336 and 344 or so AD uh, under Shopper II, which is when we have the the great persecution of Christians. And his work is 23 discourses, which are an alphabetic kind of acrostic uh, of the 22 letters of the Syriac alphabet with a 23rd one that is the recapitulation of everything else. But it's kind of split in half where like half of it seems to start to be written after the persecutions began. But he is responding to a context in which Jews are the dominant group in the area in which he's writing. Um, And there are Christians who are sort of attracted to this. But for our purposes, there is a 
group that he refers to as the Benai or Benat Kiyama, which would be like sons and daughters of the covenant. And they seem to be a special group of Christians who are celibate, who hang out in the cities and are meant to sort of live a life kind of like the angels, right? So the angels, Christ famously said in Mark's gospel are neither married nor given in marriage, right? And when you die, you become like them. So they seem to be people who are sort of proleptically living like the angels. Yep. And so they are unique, but they're not living out in the woods. They're not living out in the mountains. They're not living, you know, in some monastery removed from everybody. They're in the community and they just take these sort of vows or something of celibacy where they are known to the community and they practice certain types of prayer. And there's other language that gets used to describe this group. We find them referred to in later writers like Ephraim, who was writing, you know, maybe 10, 20 years after Afrahat. But unlike Afrahat, Ephraim writes in poetry mainly. We have a couple of prose works that survive from him. But primarily he writes poetry. And they are poetic homilies that are usually referred to as mamre or madrashe, depending on the sort of rhythm and cadence and, and style. But the Benai Benat Kiyama live in the community, and they're sometimes referred to as Irim, which is an angelic term that's kind of like the watchers. Whoa. So the ones who kind of watch and observe. So this seems to imply uh, more in Ephraim and things like that, that they some of them practice sleeplessness. They all practice celibacy, and some of them pray ceaselessly. So they're like in the churches praying constantly and are sort of this constant physical presence that are meant to remind the community of the angelic life. Now, would we call that monasticism? Probably not, right? That's not quite accurate. But they are ascetic in that they are somehow training their body, uh, their mind, and to some extent, we could say their their suke, their soul, their emotions, right? In some sort of way for death, right? They're living proleptically as they will live after death with the angels. Now, Ephraim is interesting because he seems to report a sort of transition where we have these Benai, Benat Kiyama living in the community. So he's originally from Nisibis, which is a border town that's originally on the Roman side of the divide with the Sasanian Empire. But there's the disastrous war with Julian the Apostate uh, who loses that territory and that city gets ceded to the Sasanians for a hundred year period. The greatest tragedy and, of late antiquity. <laughs> well, so this huge community is allowed to, uh, he, he guarantees that the Christians can flee if they so choose. And Ephraim seems to have been among one of these people who fled in 363 to Edessa. Gotcha. So he so goes from Nisibis to Edessa give, give us and he the, lives um, for another 10 years. Give us the political context. Why would Christians be, need to flee? Is it because they are now being absorbed um, into the Sasanian realm and the Sasanians are like, we are hardcore Zoroastrians. Um, you are not welcome no, here, but I if you want to get out, go ahead. This is So the Roman persecution, remember, is localized and yeah. not empire-wide for the second century and most of the third century, right? It's yeah. not until we get to Decius that we have for the first time an empire-wide persecution. And fundamentally, that persecution is geared around the Romans have a concept that they have a contract with the gods. Yeah. We sacrifice to the gods. The gods protect us. So if things are going badly, as they're going horrifically badly 
in the third century, right? You have 25 emperors in the first 250 years of the empire, which is pretty good. I mean, that's an average of 10 year reigns. And that includes the year of four emperors, Yeah, you know, in uh, 69, you have pretty good stability. But after the assassination of um, Alexander, the last Severin ruler, you go through another 20 some odd emperors in 50 years, right? So you got Gordian the first, second, and third, let us not forget, you know, Philip the Arab, Decius, you know, all these people, uh, most people don't know there was a second Tiberius in this period, right? There's Aurelian, there's Valerian, there's all these people, but most of them are dying violently, horrifically in battle, being captured. Um, so clearly something's wrong. So Decius in 250 to 251 institutes this empire-wide persecution. It's the first one in the Roman Empire, but it stops. And then later you have a brief period of persecution under Aurelian. You have a brief period of persecution under Valerian. And then famously Diocletian, the last great persecution right, goes from about 305 to about 312 in the West when Constantine ends it yeah. uh, with his Edict of Toleration. In the eastern part of the empire, Licinius still rules, and he allegedly still has some persecution going on, uh, which is what leads Constantine's pretext of conquering him and defeating him in 324, which then unifies the empire under Constantine. In the Sasanian realm, there doesn't appear to be any evidence for any kind of imperial persecution of Christians until after Constantine conquers the whole Roman Empire. And he, according to Eusebius, issues this very arrogant letter to Shopper, who is young. Shopper II is young when he comes to the throne. And he rules for a very long time. And he basically says, uh, you would do well to view all Christians as my subjects. Right? Well, what is that saying? That's saying they're a fifth column. (laughs) (laughs) They're sleeper cells living in your empire. So he goes, well, all right, screw you, man. And he starts persecuting the Christians. And there's debate about kind of how this accelerates. And there's some really great monographs that have been published in the last like 15, 20 years with people looking at different facets of this. But you have, for example, two famous works um, in the Persian Martyr Acts about Simeon Barsaba, who was a bishop, kind of an archbishop of the Persian Christians. And you have one's called the martyrdom of, one is called the history of, and they give slightly different reasons for why the persecution starts, but functionally he's martyred because he's asked to collect taxes, like for the Christians to pay taxes to the Persian state so the Persians can wage war against the Christians. And he refuses either because he does view them as co-religionists or because he doesn't view collecting taxes kind of as his job. And Afrahat, in the second set of his writings, addresses this martyrdom of Simeon Barsaba. So that's kind of what's going on in the Persian realm. The Persians are actively persecuting Christians from the uh, from about 337 to about 379. So that's a much longer period than we see in the Roman Empire. The Roman persecution is sporadic, and the longest continuous period is only seven years. Persian persecution is much, much longer. And so along with that, as we know from the Roman context, you know, you're going to have texts that are destroyed. You have people who know the oral traditions die and that knowledge is lost. So it seems like in the early Christian context of Sasanian Persia, there were very different traditions that existed 
Uh, so, for example, Afrahat and Ephraim seem to think 3rd Corinthians is part of the canon. Ephraim does a commentary on the diatessaron, right, with no problem at all. The idea that the Holy Spirit is feminine, as it is in early Aramaic and early Greek references, is still there because the identification is with the Holy Spirit as the figure of wisdom. So, Sophia. So, yeah. Right. And, yeah. and well, Ruach is also feminine in, in Hebrew, gotcha. even, right? And Ruha. Uh, and so you have the form Ruha Kedushta is feminine. But these kind of ideas seem to be from the earlier Aramaic tradition. And then because they lost this knowledge, then they start to look to the West to import things that have been lost. And so then they start kind of slowly being more, uh, I mean, you could call it more Hellenized, but really it's just more Romanized, taking on more Roman ideologies of what Christianity is. And there's a famous council in 410 where Christianity is kind of structured in a way that's on a model with what's going on in the West that's sponsored by the Shah Yazdegerd. And they're legalized, but they kind of follow a model of structuring and canons that you see in other Christian texts. So in 410. So official empire-wide persecution kind of ends by then, but you have sporadic periods of persecution well after that, generally against those who are in the elite classes who are Zoroastrians who convert to Christianity or those who try to actively convert Zoroastrians. Right. Right. So stay in your place and shut up and don't mess with the levers of power and we'll leave you alone. But step out of line and the yeah we'll because that's what tolerance is tolerance is i allow you to exist so don't piss me off yeah because that could be revoked at any moment you know yeah i love this um this background i think it's a really fascinating time which in itself time and place is is really a secret history to a lot of people forget about esotericism for a minute it's just the Sasanians, who are they again? And and right. what was going on in the Near East at this time? And, uh, you know, but so much crucial Western culture comes out of this time and place. Yes. Uh, as when we get to really talking about rabbinic Judaism will become abundantly clear, but we can get into the Christian side of stuff as well, because, um, well, only recently in a, a new um, text of Porphyry, previously unknown text of Porphyry was was found in a palimpsest in Syriac. Uh, Which is amazing. Yeah, and who knows what else is, is out there in Syriac waiting for us. Like, not not just amazing Syriac stuff, but also delights of Greek literature and, and other things that were th- yeah. thought lost, you know? Well, and if we fast forward to the House of Wisdom stuff, many of the texts that eventually got translated into Arabic, like Arabic Plotinus and things like that, yeah. were done by these Syriac Christians who would translate them from Greek to Syriac and then to Arabic. Mm. So that's a fast forward to the 8th century which is always right. a great thing to do to, to whet our appetites. But let's stay, let's stay with our third, fourth yeah. century context. Yeah. And our ascetics. So, so these ascetics, so if we back up then to Ephraim also makes reference to these Benai, Benat, Kiyama, right? Who he also referred to as the Irim. And, and that could have been also just for poetic purposes to keep it with like the rhythm, you know, and the, the, metri- the, the okay. homilies are very metrical. So he might have used like a shorter term, but still the basic idea is that they are proleptically living like the angels, right? He also then starts to talk about these weirder ascetics who are more athletic in their asceticism. So uh, famously, there's Abraham of Kiddushin, um, who is like living out, exposed to the elements in rain or snow, just letting it all hang down. 
you know, he's fasting constantly, he's sleep depriving himself, and he is apparently having visions. And Ephraim thinks he's definitely having visions and records some of these. People are seeing him as like a model of what you can be. So it's almost like these solitary, more athletic ascetics out in the wilderness, right? So they're no longer in the cities. They're out in the middle of the wilderness. But I mean, that's, you know, this is the ancient times. You know, your cities are like 20,000 people and you can just walk up right. into the mountain, you know? Yeah. But you got this weird dude who's doing this stuff, like staying out here and people would go and watch him do this. So it's like a, an icon, like a living icon. Yeah. You could kind of watch and meditate on and think about what he's doing, ask him to pray for you or intercede for you, ask him to, right? So these people are living in this liminal zone between being an ordinary person and being an angelic or holy representative. And as this period progresses, if we fast forward to the 5th century, you've got Theodoret writes his history of the monks of Syria, uh, or history religiosa is what it's called in Latin. But the text he wrote in Greek and he himself is bilingual, and he's pretty clear when he's talking about different people, if they spoke Aramaic or if they spoke Greek. Uh, and by Aramaic, he means Syriac. Mm. And he records this lineage of weird asceticism that's very distinct from the Egyptian asceticism. Because by this point, you've got Palladius has written his Lausiac history, and he's kind of trying to do like, a, hey, wait a second, Egyptians don't have a monopoly on asceticism. This does not all come from Egypt. So he writes this work and he records people going back to the 330s, but really his best information is people from like the 380s on forward, some of whom he met as a child. So he talks about some of them he met as a child. And you have these weird monks who are like covering themselves in chains and just standing there, like holding these chains for like hours. So it's like feats of strength, right? as a way to discipline the body. You have people he calls dendrites. They live in the trees, yeah. exposed to the elements all the time. And then of course you famously have Simeon Stylitis, Simeon the Stylite, who's living on a pillar, which people keep building up higher and higher and he's staying there exposed to the elements. So he is physically in the air, right? In between you and God, right? So mm -hmm. this kind of solitary asceticism does not fit the sort of definitions we would normally give to monasticism, no. which is why I prefer to stick with asceticism. I love it. And then we have a series of texts that are hard to date. There hasn't been a good monograph on them in over a century, but they're sometimes referred to as third and fourth Clement, uh, but they are epistles that claim to be by Clement. Uh, Clement of on Rome, Virginia. that is, not Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Rome. Gentle listeners. Correct, correct. Yes. So one and two Clement, these epistles of Clement are in our earliest full manuscript of the Bible in Greek in the New Testament portion. They're also in our earliest complete Syriac Bible as part of the New Testament. So there's a good Syriac edition of uh, first and second Clement. So these epistles are important, but these other epistles are kind of weird to date. It's not really clear why they're associated with Clement of Rome at all, but they're about virginity. And they have kind of rules for these wandering ascetics who are living kind of like the apostles. The most convincing arguments I've seen are from people like Cramner who have argued that they are from the late second or early third century. So they have some points in common with uh, kind of texts like the sentences of Xistus, uh, which sometimes in the West gets called the sentences of Sextus, uh, but it's a collection of ascetical sayings, but Xistus is better, I think, attested in the manuscripts. But the 
groups here are males and females who wander from place to place exposed to the elements who will only spend a couple nights in one town, right? So as not to burden them while they spread the gospel. And again, they think they're living like the apostles, but they're moving from place to place in this kind of liminal capacity. So again, it's small groups and they wander constantly and they pop up on the scene pretty close to the time that we have early Manichees. So it's possible one influenced the other. Uh, it's not really clear in which direction. But by the time we get to the fourth century, you have writers like Ephraim, who are very clearly contrasting Manichaean ways of life with these other Christian ascetic ways of life and why they're different. Theodoret and other Eastern writers will write a lot of works trying to distinguish our ascetics from those ascetics, these Manichaean ascetics, because even though they're also impressive, ours are more impressive, but let me tell you why. You know, it's kind of that, there's a lot of polemics in that asceticism. And the goal of the asceticism is not just physically preparing yourself for death, but it's also mentally, proleptically preparing yourself for these experiences. So if you go back to Exodus, right, when the Jewish people encountered God on the mountain, or at this point, the Hebrews, as they're called in the text, encounter God at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. They're told not to approach a woman for three days, so to abstain from sex, so that they will have a vision of God. Okay, so these people apply celibacy as kind of the basic thing of your celibate in order to perpetually be prepared for a vision, which suggests that they are trying to have or trying to be able to have visions on a regular basis. They also will practice fasting using the model of Elijah uh, from the book of Kings. Uh, first and second Kings, you have Elijah out in the wilderness, you know, fasting constantly, sitting in silence, you know, kind of exposed to the elements, right? The famous episode where God, you know, sends a storm and fire on the mountain and all this kind of stuff, but really appears to him in silence. All of that is kind of a model. John the Baptist becomes a model for how to live, you know, living out in the wilderness on this very restrictive diet, wandering from place to place, preaching to people to repent. And then, of course, the early apostles. And John becomes kind of a model apostle for virginity, apparently, and for um, kind of a once the gospel of John is associated with that disciple, you do have a lot of stuff about seeing God, visions of God, only through the sun can you have these visions. You have a lot of stuff about the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, and this direct experience of God who will abide within you. And then you have the Thomasine tradition, these uh, traditions associated with the gospel of Thomas, which your listeners have encountered before, where it also is heavily focused on vision and the experience of vision. So there's a, one of the famous quotes that I love is Jesus says, he who is close to me is close to the fire, right? He was far to me as far from the, from the kingdom of God. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Well, the kavod, the fiery form of God, right? In the old Testament is this physical manifestation of God you see in the P source. And it's sort of this man shaped being a fire that you might have a vision of. And so there's sort of an identification in both John's gospel with Jesus as the glory, which tends to be the Greek doxa, the translation of kavod, and in the Thomasine tradition where Jesus also seems to be equated with the kavod, the glory, this sort of man-sized vision. Uh, so even if you read like Ezekiel chapter one, right, you have the fiery shape up above, like fire in amber is how the upper part of the body is described and the lower part is just flame, mm. you know, kind of mixing together different traditions. And so all of these texts from scripture 
which they know probably orally and probably selectively influence what they're trying to achieve in a state of vision. And some of them, we have very specific, not quite rubrics, you know, cause you don't have monastic rules yet, but you have pretty clear descriptions of physically what they're doing to themselves and then accounts of them having visions. So Ephraim never claims to have visions himself, but he describes very detailed things about people like Abraham of Kiddushin. Theodoret never claims to have visions himself, but he describes very vividly what these Syrian ascetics, these very athletic ascetics are doing to achieve visions. And he's pretty clear that they are having visions. Yeah. But then from an insider perspective, we do have texts like the Makarian homilies, and those come from Mesopotamia. The only river that's mentioned in the text is the Euphrates. So, I mean, it's written in Greek, though, but they seem to be sort of expressing a wandering ascetic practice where there is exposure to the elements, there is sleeplessness, there is fasting. And instead of having these separated things, I think your listeners might have encountered Evagrius already, and Evagrius has a lot we of... We haven't talked about Evagrius of Pontus. We will do, uh, but... Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, when we get to the so, later sort of originist tradition. Oh, we'll, yeah. We'll be talking okay. about him. So Evagrius has more of a focus on the noose, the mind and this mental activity. But the Makarian ones are so evocative because they place everything in, centered in the cardia, the heart. And so the heart is like the nexus of all of these other things, your body, your, your noose, your mind, your psuche, the, you know, the center of your emotions and, and all this all intersect in the heart. And it doesn't take a genius, you know, to figure that out, but like, Hey, when I get mad, my heart rate accelerates. Mm. When I feel calm, it's, it slows down. When I think certain things, my heart rate picks up, you know, when, uh, physically, when things happen to me, suddenly I feel it here. And then suddenly I'm having different thoughts because something physically happened to me. So the cardia becomes the nexus then of their focus as a way of kind of accessing all these other things. So it's less compartmentalized in the Makarian texts. And so it's not clear if any of these other people really did compartmentalize it the way outsiders seem to view it as. Right. But but they clearly express it in this holistic, physicalized way. And there are such beautiful passages Um evoking this kind of visionary states and what one is achieving. And uh, famously, there's four collections of the Makarian homilies. They're usually called the first part, second part, third part, and fourth part that have been passed on. And the second part is probably the most famous. And there's 50 homilies that are there. And the first one is on the vision in, in Ezekiel. And functionally, the the author, you, you have in Ezekiel's vision, the weird thing of the Ophani, these angelic beings with four faces that are covered in eyeballs in John's revelation. Uh, the apocalypse, you know, has them as beings with slightly different where they each have one face, but of each of those types, but covered in eyeballs on the inside and outside. Mm. And so Macarius, whose name might be Simeon of Mesopotamia. Uh, some of the Coptic manuscripts list him as Simeon of Mesopotamia. So usually the name is a hyphenated Macarius Simeon. Gotcha to differentiate from Macarius the Great of Alexandria, who seems to be a totally different figure. And Macarius is just kind of a title. It just means the Blessed One. Blessed One, yeah. So, it's, yeah. Could be a name, could be a proper name, could be a, a monk, a name you took upon achieving religious orders, or it could just be a generic, uh, just a generic throwaway name. title. 
Right. So we don't know for sure. But the author talks about how when you have this vision, you become all eye, all light, Mm. right? All seen, like you kind of become the light that you perceive. But there's a lot of emphasis on certain aspects of vision that are very evocative. And so part of what my research interest has been for like a decade now is can we reconstruct ancient experience from texts? Because I think that's a tricky question, right? Because if someone says, well, they ate this, no one ever questions that. No one goes, they weren't eating octopus. You know, you just go, yeah, they're eating octopus. But yet if we have a text where someone's like, I saw God, you're like, that didn't happen. Yeah. Well, they might have thought they saw God, right? And you don't have to agree that that's what happened. I don't want to get into your epistemology, but like, Mm. I think we should take seriously what people are describing. And when they have very physicalized descriptions, because we're human and we experience things fairly similarly, and they describe the practices that they're doing to achieve that, we can use modern research uh, from neuroscience and from first responder studies and things on like hypothermia and heat exposure and things like that and what that does to you right? and, and kind of reconstruct it. So for example, uh, there's really good research on exposure and what that does to people. So the longer you're exposed to the elements, whether it's extreme cold or extreme heat, you, the longer your pupils become dilated. And if you've ever had the experience of having very dilated pupils, you tend to take in an enormous amount of light as your eyes are designed to do, you get dazzled. You get, you get dazzled. You get halos on everything. Everything is radiant. Everything is bright. Everything is all this. Okay. So what do we have that's very common in this Syriac ascetic tradition? Wandering, exposure to the elements, you know, things like that, that are in an environment where it's pretty mountainous if you're up in the north. Uh, so you have references from later writers like John Deliatha, who's writing in the ninth century, or uh, sorry, 8th century, the 700s, who talks about people who like cover themselves in snow on the mountain and just stay there, right? Uh, which is pretty hardcore. Yeah. And if you've ever gone polar bear swimming, uh, which I have, like your pupils are just massively dilated after that experience for like hours. And everything has this like glowing halo. Everything has this kind of glowing light. And that's one of the things that they describe. Well, that's interesting. Well, then there are studies on things like sleep deprivation and what that does to people. So Mm -hmm. if you have people who are intentionally sleep depriving themselves and exposing to the elements, that seems much more likely to to kind of do that experience. And and Earl, you've, you've heard me use this example before with people, but I think as any college student, any high school student, any researcher has at some point, probably in the course of traveling or in the course of writing something, been up for more than like 36 hours. Sometimes you're just on a hot streak or you're trying to meet a deadline. You don't get a lot of sleep. Things get wonky. They get weird, right? They get very So what is your, they get very weird and they don't have the advantage of coffee. So what, if you're up for that amount of time for days, as they describe in some of these texts, and you're fasting, and you're exposed to the elements, again, you're just compiling different kinds of things that physiologically on their own could induce some sorts of altered states. So I don't think we can say this is the vision they had and because you can't empirically reproduce that just like I can't empirically reproduce your memory. But I think what you can say is physiologically, this makes sense. And 
this is what they're describing and what they describe fits what modern subjects describe when they talk about what this experience was like of fasting or sleep deprivation or whatever. And if you have people just compounding multiple practices on top of each other, yeah, it just seems like more likely that they're going to induce that kind of state, although they would never say that they're inducing it. So in the Makarian homilies, the rhetoric is entirely of making oneself available gotcha. to the yeah. experience. Yeah, um, which, which is theologically sound from a Christian standpoint, mm. and also fits mm-hmm. perfectly, incidentally, with Jamblichus's uh, polytheist idea of how ritual practice works as well. You can't, mm. you don't compel the gods to do stuff. You, It looks like you're doing that, but what you're really doing is just creating a space in the cosmos that the gods can go and just appear in because you've created the proper space for them. Um, yeah, or in your soul, yeah. same thing. If you make your soul a suitable habitation for the gods, they will irradiate it with their their goodness. Right. It's kind of like your uh, the metaphor I've used before is it's like you're making your body permeable yeah. to this experience of being interpenetrated, right? Perichoresis kind of language uh, with the deity or with the divine. And for early Christian texts, it's the Holy Spirit hmm. that most profoundly enters into you, abides in you, gives you this experience. Uh, you know, Paul in his letters talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And so for some of these early writers, this these kind of ecstatic experiences are very much in the body, right? So it really, we maybe shouldn't speak of ecstasy, we should speak of entity, but it's within the self, right? And uh, it is something that is a gift from from God. So from their perspective, theologically, this is what they're doing. And I think generally, there's a lot of good research on priming that like people sort of can be prepared for what to expect when they meditate, when they take uh, psychedelics, when they fast. And if you've been trained on what to expect, you're going to tend to think of things in terms of what one has already experienced or what one has been kind of trained to see. Right. And so if you are uh, say a, a Syriac Christian versus say a Manichae, you might be trained to experience things in a particular way or to expect to see certain things. So when you have an experience, you translate that into an understanding of what it is that's happening. You translate that into a sense of how you should think about it and categorize it. Right. right? And depending on your religious background, right, whether you're, you know, Neoplatonist philosopher or you're into the Hermetica, you're going to understand it in that lens but the experience itself the raw kind of experience of you know our humanity right like it's embodiment I, i'm skeptical yeah I'm, I'm skeptical of any scholar that goes well i don't know that they were feeling anger and it's like well then you're a sociopath i'm sorry but if you can't actually understand that other people experience and feel things similarly to how you do then you're kind of denying their humanity and I think Aristotle is right to say oh, nothing human is foreign to me. If a human experienced it, we can kind of have access to that because we ourselves are human. We can get a, uh, an insider kind of take on that. But if someone is a Muslim or someone is a Christian or someone is a Jew or a Mandan or a Manichae or, what, or Neoplatonist, they're going to understand that experience in probably radically different ways. Yeah. Well, I think also when it gets to the level of like um, visionary imagery – when you start to talk about incredibly detailed, very concrete images, like seen before the eyes, you could take Jamblichus, you could take Hildegard von Bingen, you could take William Blake. And mm, from mm. what I gather, what you're saying, you can take a lot of these guys as well, right? 
we have to posit not only, well, we could posit a number of things. We could just say they saw a vision and it was the kavod surrounded by angels and then this, this, all this crazy stuff happened. So just pure phenomenology without any kind of judgment or interpretation. Just it's the text says he saw this and that's what he saw. Or we could say whatever kind of experiences this guy was having, he's, he's like this sort of bedraggled, half-dead dude covered in snow out in the mountain. And later on when, he's, <laughs> when you know, they've, they've managed to force him to eat some gruel or whatever, and they're saying, what did you see? What did you see? We're the, we're the, um, the literate, settled community that want to benefit from your marginal wisdom that you got out on the borderlands, right? You've come back, tell us right. your vision so we can benefit from it, and I'm going to write right. it down. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's not unreasonable to posit a certain amount of kind of editing that goes on. Like, well, I saw, and then thinking, oh, God, there was this light. Well, it was it was the kavod that I saw. Sure. You know what I mean? Like a right. retrospective, not intentional, but I, just... Oh, I, I agree. You know, how, so think about the way memory works, right? So memory, so yeah. studies on memory show, memory is not a film, right? It, it does not play exactly. What we have are fragments of what happened scattered in different parts of our brain. And every time we retell a memory, we reconfigure it in a new way. And part of the reason trauma specialists will try to get you to repeat what happened in a traumatic event uh, several times in a few hours is because they want it to coalesce into something that is coherent to you because you're less likely to go into shock Hmm. if it is coherent. If it is incoherent or inchoate, you are much more likely to go into shock from it. So if you go back to the rabbinic tradition, right, there's the there's the story of the four who ascended to Pardis, right? And one of them goes mad from the visions, right? He can't make sense of what he saw. One comes back and teaches heresy, right? So there's kind of these warnings about what to do with what you experienced, right? Which is why, you know, uh, only a man and only if you're 33 years of age should read Ezekiel, right? You know, because you can't handle what you're about to experience. But I think too, you've been primed whatever tradition you're in, in like, this is what you should expect. This is what you should prepare, right? You're studying under a guru or a, a kind of a master student relationship, or a, you're just a mathetes, you know, you're the disciple and that your teacher is teaching you how to do these things gradually. And then eventually you're ready. Like, all right, you go up the mountain now you're ready for it. And you cover yourself in snow and you have this experience or you go live in the trees for a couple of weeks and see how it goes. And you know, you're going to have fasting, sleep deprivation, you know, the fear that comes along with those things um, and the exposure to the elements and all of that. And you might have those experiences and then you've got to articulate it. But even the act of trying to put it in words, right? This is like famously William James, right? The How do you put it in words? So I'm already translating an experience to make it make sense to you. Like, you know, you've got children, I've got children. Think about when your kid is having a big emotion, right? Like, mm. how do you help them make sense of that emotion? Like, we're giving them words yeah. in some ways to explain when they're feeling angry or frustrated or hurt or sad or happy or whatever. And they only know how to express that because they have kind of a toolbox of words that they can use to describe it. Mm. And I don't – it would be, um, again, I think uh, – uh, exhibiting psychopathy to say, well, this child doesn't really feel these emotions because they can't, they don't talk about it in a Webster dictionary kind of way. Yeah. Right. That would be insane. But to say, okay, what are they experiencing? Well, I feel hot. I feel this, this is what's physically happening to me. And then, Oh, oh, I get it. I'm, I'm upset. 
or yeah. I'm happy mm. or this happened and I, you know, I, I felt this and then this. So I think, you know, part of that priming is getting them to a point. And what's cooler about the later Syriac ascetic tradition is it gets really detailed about the steps one should go through and about how one should understand it and about uh, you have texts written from one monk who's an adept to others who are not telling them kind of what they need to do to prepare, telling them about what they might experience and when it fails, when it works, when it does, you know, uh, and a range of possibilities, which is uh, incredibly cool to see. That is so cool. And that are so explicit. I would love to explore that in a bit more detail because Mm -hmm. it seems to me that what you're just describing on the one hand, if we look forward in the history of Western esotericism, we find something not in details, but in, in the basic premises, quite like that in Sufism in its developed form. Mm. We have manuals, you have uh, detailed descriptions of psychological states. If you see this, mm-hmm. watch out because it's really your nafs tricking you. It's not really God. But if you feel this, then it's really God and you can move forward. Like all this really, yeah. really elaborate psychological stuff, um, methodologies, um, like elaborate kind of um, very nuanced techniques and a teacher-student relationship where the teacher can can fine-tune it and be like, you need this practice, but you need this practice, right? So so that we see later for sure. And also maybe in later some monastic context where you, it, it's, a, it's a bit more of a blunt instrument, but it's definitely, you know, tuning the, the rhythms of daily life toward a kind of meditative way of being. A, maybe a bit less hardcore, a bit less like, let's die before mm-hmm. we die, but a bit more like something that's suitable for a large swath of the population. Right. We see that also in the Buddhist tradition. Where we haven't yet seen it, as far as I'm aware, is in the textual tradition of greco-roman society or the west so until this syriac material you're talking about now and um, yeah we don't see this kind of meditation manual spiritual practice detail oriented technical literature so this might be a first for the schwepp oh yeah maybe I, i'm not sure like if it's the the first but no i mean not, for- i'm not saying in terms of what actually ever existed i'm saying in terms of what oh, we it. have now oh what you have discussed got it yeah and, and what exists and it, in the textual record i mean what is there before right. this i mean see this is the thing right like you have vision states described yeah in for sure some of the pseudepigrapha the apocalyptic literature but it's not always clear or detailed in terms of the practices done so like fourth ezra you know, he fasts yeah. for seven days, eating only the grass of the field. Okay, well, that's fasting, potentially sleep deprivation. You've well, got we Joseph spoke, and Asna. Sorry to, to interrupt. Um, oh, we yeah. spoke with um, Francis Flannery about Fourth Ezra specifically. Oh, great. And, yeah. um, and the cultivation of visionary dreams in this apocalyptic yep. context. Yeah. And it's amazing stuff, but there's just not that kind of technical detail. Like, like It's not as detailed. It's not like, right. son, if you want to have a dream like this, what you need to do is go do this and this and this. Yes. Right. And that's where I think like the closest thing we have in earlier Jewish tradition. And unlike like a Ross Kramer, I think it is a Jewish text uh, is Joseph and Asna, yeah. uh, which is probably first century it's very detailed on what Asenath has to do to go it through this liminal state from becoming a pagan to becoming a Jew. And it's interesting because it, it doesn't describe circumcision, right? Cause women didn't have to be circumcised. So instead it's like this 
period of a week long fasting and mourning period. So like loud lamenting. So you're like kind of inducing sadness and grief. And, you know, I mean, that's going to do things to you Mm. uh, for a week of fasting, sleeplessness and and mourning and lamentations. And you have to like smash your old gods and like cover yourself in the ashes from the fire of those things. You know, there's this whole kind of thing. And then it describes this vision she has of a man from heaven, right? Clearly meant to be an angelic figure who gives her the bread of life, the medicine of mortality, which is a honeycomb, right? So she eats like this honeycomb. So it's like a ritualized food that's sweet. That's this, right? Like it's, it's very interesting, but like, you know, that those three practices on their own, could induce a sort of altered state, whether it's just slight wonkiness, like from, you know, being up for 36 hours or, you know, something more, but all three of them combined suggests something more detailed. But in the Jewish and Christian apocalyptic literature, we don't get that degree of specificity early on, but we do start to see it in these, in these other texts. So instead you have texts that maybe describe actual visions or maybe describe how one should think of visions that you are having. But yeah, the, the actual descriptions of what to do is really the Makarian homilies are the most explicit and they're very, and it's a first person account, right? It's, this is telling you what they have done to have these visions and kind of saying, you can also have these visions. So very similar to Evagrius, because when you get to Evagrius, he's also very clear on like, these are the steps you can take. This is how you can achieve this. Yeah. Let's, and I do think the Makarian homilies are earlier, and I think most scholars would agree that they're earlier than, than Evagrius. So third century sometime? Fourth century, but just earlier. So yeah. maybe 370s, maybe 360s. Some people want to put them as late or as contemporary with, because there's a text called The Great Letter, that's in the Makarian corpus where the author seems to be trying to lay out their theology to fit with Christian orthodoxy of Theodosius the first and Gregory of Nyssa writes a similar text that copies this one. And there was debate in earlier in the 20th century uh, about whether or not Macarius copied Gregory or Gregory copied Macarius pretty widely agreed now uh, that it's Gregory who's copying Macarius. So that just means it's earlier. How much earlier is hard to say. And if that text is kind of the capstone of this writer's career, right, they wrote it at the start of, you know, 378 when uh, these edicts are put in place at Thessalonica, maybe it's the end of their career and these other texts are earlier, in which case you might have a career that spans, you know, 10, 20 years. But it's possible that all of these texts come from the 370s, 380s. I I tend to think they're probably a little bit earlier than that because we do have weird references in Basil about uh, the Holy Spirit deifying where he talks about these monks in Mesopotamia who are having visions and obviously like they're being deified. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is God, you know, right. Mic drop. Paul Peschese, stay esoteric. (laughs) 